Hey friends, you're listening to Go Home Bob or You're Drunk, an irreverent media podcast. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change, it's a podcast about seeking moral high ground, and it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, and if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us. This is Go Home Bible, You're Drunk, the podcast where we examine our Bibles and evangelicalism through the lens of having left all of that shit behind. I'm Tori. I'm a former evangelical, former like cult attendee, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I've i been clean now for like eight and a half years. <laughs> so, that's kind of fucked up. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to make light of people who have to deal with substances. That was unkind. I have a co-host, though. Oh, I mean, I, I'm with you, though, because, I mean, it it is kind of like a drug. The The cult is a bit like a drug in the same way that, like, porn is an addiction. I think church is an addiction. Like, it's not really an addiction, but right. Not if, clinically an addiction, but still but it can feel that way. Yeah, I've been clean for probably five or six years ish. <laughs> I was a pastor, though. I was a dealer, if you will. Uh, and I, I was, I was a, a card carrying member of the cult and, uh, but I'm not that now. And I, you know, and people that want to stay in and make it better, like more power to you, go for it, man. But that's really not what we're here to do today. So <laughs> we're actually, we have a special episode. This is our last episode of the year, by the way, we are, we are ending on a very high note because we have with us today, I, I wanted to say, sir, I don't know why, but I wanted to say, sir, because <laughs> of the Oxford thing. It's because of Oxford, right? I, he's not a sir, but I wanted to make him a sir uh, be- because because <laughs> you know we, we we love we love Brad. He's a friend of the pod. He's been on uh, at least once before, and uh, he has a new book coming out, "Preparing for War: The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next." And so we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're also just going to talk about generally just stuff that's going on, and hopefully also how we can deal with it. So, Brad, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back. And yeah, I mean, sir, that's that's a new one. And it's definitely not does not fit in any way. I've been wearing the same sweatpants for four to five days. So haven't shaved. So, you know, there's there's really I gotta nothing. I believe that Sir Ian McKellen also has sweatpants on <laughs> many days in a row. Yeah. <laughs> sweatpants. I like so my one-year-old daughter, we joined a fancy gym only because it's cheaper to take her to daycare there than anywhere in the Bay Area. So I always go there dressed for the gym, like I'm going to work out. And then nice. I love. That. I just go, I just like go on my computer and do stuff. So I end up wearing, <laughs> <laughs> so I like go to the juice bar for three hours and then, nice. you know, like 
go um anyway so i wear the same sweats every day like i'm going to go just kill it on uh the deadlifts and then i you know just email people and do stuff so that that's why i'm wearing the same sweats yeah genuinely i think you've just changed lives like i (laughs) this is a life hack that i am very keen to try Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. oh i know so many people who do this because a lot of gyms it's like there's kind of like a flat fee so if you have multiple kids you can drop them all off oh yeah and yeah i'm like it's a great way to be able to work out as a mom i will say like that is a very great way to be able to work out it's also a great way to have meetings no i definitely feel like i'm the guy who's like why does that man always have a microphone with him by the pool and he's always like just you know talking to people he know he doesn't worry he never works out uh he's always on a microphone so are, anyway, are you whatever. are you at the gym now no <laughs> <laughs> i, I I've been sleeping in the locker room. Um, oh, and, you know, nice, I just nice. I, I have a lot of work to do, and uh, I got to get stuff done. So no, yeah. I am not. But uh, well, thanks for being on the show, and thanks for just being with us. This is um, I don't know if you know, but there is a war going on right now for Christmas. It's it's happening. My favorite, my favorite uh, war. You know, and and right now the 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 main front of the war on Christmas is whether or not churches should have church services on. On Christmas Day, which is which is Sunday this year, every six or seven years, this great debate is revisited. And it's at, when I was a pastor, I remember thinking like we are planning two or three Christmas Eve services mm-hmm. the night before. Like, why we got to plan two or three services the following morning? Let's pick. Like, let's pick one. But you know, there are some very godly people that uh, feel otherwise that we should. Not worship at the altar of Santa Claus, but worship <laughs> the baby Jesus. You know. I I like that you said that because I'm just imagining if there is like some sort of scatter plot, like for data. I bet you, I bet you, like the more affluent the church, the less likely they will have service on Sunday. Cash money. I would, mm-hmm. I would, I would, I would bet you actual literal U.S. currency. Well, I was just gonna say when I was in ministry, I, I it was in a community where that went kind of like middle class to upper middle class. And so like, definitely like my family and others like drove a Corolla and like, you know, a beat up minivan. But then there was other people in the church who were like, you know, had the, like the, the, the summer home and the boat and, you know, they were Mm -hmm. those people. Right. And we never had the Sunday service for Christmas morning when it, when it fell like this, as you said, Justin, and I was uh, from a practical standpoint, I totally get it. Who wants to like plan 19 services? It's impossible, but young zealous me would go right at those like older pastors and just be like, are we Christians or not? I thought if you want to win the war on Christmas, then let's have (laughs) fucking church on Christmas. This is when Jesus was born. You all want to stay home and open presents like consumer capitalists, like dickheads. No, we're going to have service and worship God. And they would all be like, no, we're not because no one will come. (laughs) And all that matters right? is no one would come. Yeah, no yeah, one would be here. That's what they they literally said that to me. They're like, no one will come, so we're not gonna do it. And I'm like, all right. The only you know, time whatever. conservatives are anti-capitalist is on Christmas morning if, <laughs> if there's a church service. Because they yep. want that money. Yep. Like I can't imagine waking up Christmas morning and my parents being like, We're gonna go to church real quick. Like I just I I have zero memories of that happening. I mean, I mean, I'm sure it fell on a Sunday while I was a child, but yeah, zero can, I, member. can I, can I give you like one really proud moment of mine oh, that's it. related? So I, I was leaving ministry in 2005 and it was July 
and we had a staff retreat to plan the Christmas Eve times and services, among other things. So it's like six months away. It's 100 degrees. And we're in this room, this like youth room on beanbags where everyone's like supposed to like, you know, among other things, talk about what times, as you said, Justin, like the five Christmas Eve services should be, you know, mm-hmm. 12, 3, 5, 30, and 7, and 9, whatever. And I, I'm thinking, I'm leaving this church in a month. I don't even know if I believe in God anymore. I cannot wait to get out of here. I hate everything right now, including this. And so I was like totally twiddling my thumbs, no smartphones at that point, but just was checked out. Like anyone looking at me would have been like, that guy is not paying attention. He is, he is like somewhere else. So the music minister goes, Hey, Brad, what do you think you'll be doing on Christmas Eve? It was like trying to break tension because there was a disagreement about what times the services Mm -hmm. were. And he was trying to be funny because he knew I would be living in England by then. And he thought I would be like, I don't know, Mark, I'll be like drinking some jolly, you know, tea and blah, blah, blah. And I, I looked him right in the face and I was like, you know, Mark, I'm pretty sure by that time I'll be drinking warm beer for breakfast. So I don't know. <laughs> and this is a church where you were not allowed to drink at all. <laughs> and and everyone, it this. was like, it was just like this look of like shock and awe of just like some people died laughing. Like, I can't believe that motherfucker did that. I can't believe yeah. he just said that. And That's other people weird. were just like, what's going to happen next? You know, but it remains one of my proudest parting shots from That's my ministry. Great. <laughs> That's yeah. so great. I love this. So, so how did we get from, you know, I'm going to drink warm beer, Brad, <laughs> to I'm writing a book about white Christian nationalism, like spilling all the tea. Yeah. Yeah. There's some tea. Yeah. Um, <laughs> can we, can we plot this journey for a second here? Sure. So 2005, I have just finished. I was in ministry by the time I was 20. Uh, I was married and in charge of like 200 kids at the mega church in California, stayed in ministry, graduate. So I did my final two years of college full-time, ministry full-time, married at 20, and then went to seminary for a couple of years. And in those last years of college and in seminary, I just started reading everything and realized there were so many different ways to be a Christian. So I was like, you know what? I don't want to be a a church planter or a pastor, missionary. I want to be a Christian college professor. That's what I'm going to do. And so I started like, just, I was so into like Thursdays were my pastor's day off. So on Thursdays, my wife at that time would go to work and I would go to the coffee shop with like 28 books and a Greek textbook and just be like, all right, here's my Thursday, seven Frappuccinos and, you know, Trinitarian theology. It's going to be a good day. And by the time I got to that end of second year seminary, I was like, I don't know what I believe. I don't know if I want to be a like high church Episcopalian or a Methodist or like a real Society of Friends Quaker person, but it's definitely not evangelicalism because this is horseshit. So I I made it to the end. I I, I had my, my warm beer for breakfast statements, but I didn't get fired. I didn't storm out and moved it to the UK, went to Oxford for graduate school. And I thought I would be like, hey, let's let's try all the smorgasbord of Christianity. Let's just take a little of this, you know, let's go see what it's like when you go to Anglican church and there's incense and smells and bells and all that business. You have to take a Claritin before you go and everything. Let's like go see, you know, what it's like with the uh, the social justice Methodist. And like within six months, I didn't go to church at all. And my wife and I got divorced, right? So life at that point was like and six then, months yeah. after being this hometown 
golden boy youth pastor man owning a condo and a uh, you know small SUV. I was like living in a dorm next to nineteen year olds, divorced. God is dead, and just like reading all of the books I could and trying to figure out life. And it was, it was a weird time. If you fast forward, I get a PhD in religious studies, stay in the religion game, don't leave it, and start to really think about evangelicalism and and white Christianity in America through the lenses of like history, history and sociology and philosophy. Started straight white American Jesus with my friend Dan Miller, who has a pretty similar story to me, and then just wanted to figure out a way to kind of write what I think is the history of white Christian nationalism from the 1960s through the prism of like my own story and my own participation in it as somebody who was a former evangelical. And, and this is hard, you know, it's funny. It's like you talk about being an XV or an ex evangelical and it's like, yeah, it, it's almost like a badge of honor, but saying I'm a, I'm an ex Christian nationalist or I'm an ex white Christian nationalist. If it makes, it's a lot harder to say, it feels like way more like, wow, I, I don't want to say those words out loud, but I'm going to say them because I think they're true and we need to examine like how that works and why it happened and all that stuff. So, yeah, it's an interesting, like I was talking about this in another forum. I it's like escaped me where now, cause I, I talk so much. Yeah. Like when you kind of pull that initial thread of like, I'm not even evangelical anymore. And then you're like, Oh shit, but I am a racist. And so like you pull that thread, like, Oh, well crap. Like, I was LGB affirming, but I need to be T affirming as well as all these other things. And like, oh, I guess intersex people exist. So like you kind of keep pulling those threads and and then, yeah, and you realize, oh, I, I was a nationalist. I was a I was a white Christian nationalist like and it's I get why people don't do it now because it's a fuck ton of work and it's not fun work. Like it is not it is not fun to realize like. I'm a racist. Like that is not a fun thing to realize. Like it is not a fun thing to realize that I think you've mentioned it before in other forms too. Like I could have been at January 6th. Like there is a, there is a multiverse out there somewhere where Justin punched a cop at the Capitol. Like that, 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 that is not, and that's a multiverse that's not as far removed as I would like it to be. So that's that's hard to sit with so like i get why people don't do it or don't want to do it or like they kind of just like i'm going to be a progressive christian and i'm no further and there's nothing wrong with that necessarily but i also think that sometimes progressive christians or people that kind of sit there comfortably are maybe one of the bigger roadblocks because they're like so what do you think about lgbtq affirmation like well it's nuanced like it's i'm glad you're not saying no but when you say it's "Mm, it's nuanced let's have coffee it's kind of worse almost no coffee only tea yes no coffee only tea that's how we live now yeah i mean we were all told that we were like gonna take back the country for jesus yeah from you know the before times when jesus had the country i guess which like the more i read american history which is something i read obsessively because i'm a nerd the less i'm like wait what the fuck were you people even talking about like i totally get like great awakening and like there's all of these things happening and people are creating like new religions that are just like these kind of weird christian offshoot thingies but yeah like this time that they're like taking us back to ostensibly it's like but but, but when like when was this but you know we didn't we didn't ask those questions because it's not a context in which you're allowed to well it's a context where you're not going to get 
satisfying answers. So I think that eventually, like in order to stay, you kind of just stop asking the questions. And you kind of just go along. So when we talk about the history of white Christian nationalism, is it, is the TLDR like it's American history? (laughs) (laughs) Or is there like a starting point? Oh, there's the, okay. There's the whole book. All right. Well, (laughs) no need to keep talking. Thanks for the interview. Yeah. I mean, yes, I think, I think, I think the TLDR is it's American history. I think obviously we could, we could point to so many great books that are like white, you know, white Christian nationalism starts wherever, you know, 1619 or, you know, wherever you want to go in terms of how this happens in terms of colonialism, the middle passage, the invention of race and so on. I started the 1960s because I think that shorter window gives people uh, an ability just to get a handle on kind of recent history, their grandparents, their parents, and them. And here's what I think happens in the 1960s is all of these things happen in the country that, you know, I think the three of us would, would say are, are positive. They're not finished and they're not complete and they're not definitive, but they're positive. So civil rights movement, civil rights act, voting rights act, immigration reform, the first major immigration reform since the 1920s. Feminine mystique is 1963. Women enter the workforce and mass. No fault divorce. You can just get divorced because you want to. You don't need a reason. Women can have a bank account. Who knew? Yes. 1967, the Loving Act. You know, us mixed race folks. That's always nice that, uh, you know, mixed race people can have interracial marriages and not, you know, that's not, that's legal. 1969 is Stonewall. And there's obviously a lot of queer liberation before that. But Stonewall is always a kind of moment that sticks out for, for folks. Here's the point. A lot of rights and representation extended to people and groups who had not had them before. Now, again, not finished, not definitive, not complete, but positive. White Christian nationalists take the 1960s as that time that I think you were talking about, Tori, that in our modern lives, in our modern memory, Jesus was taken out of the schools. Prayer and the Bible left the schools. One Supreme Court justice I cite in the book after those court cases says that you allowed Black people, he uses a different word. He, you allow black people in schools and he took God out. And I think that's a good uh, sign of how our, our you know, country's gone down the drain. Mm-hmm. Seems fair. Let's, let's keep going with that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so in my mind, the 1960s are, are when they look at all of the stuff I just named and said, we have to get our country back because we founded it. We deserve it. And all those folks, immigrants, people of color, black people, indigenous people, queer people, mixed race people, this is not their country. And why are you serious? You, you're going to let them like have all of that. So like as recently as 2020 top brass at focus on the family says the 1960s is when the country went godless, right? If you ever listen to James Dobson growing up, this is, he talked about the, the sexual revolutions and uh, the cultural revolutions of the 1960s ad nauseum. So this continues obviously into the seventies. And the, the the 80s, and we all know about the 80s and the Reagan 80s and the, the Dobson and the focus on the family and the moral majority continues in the 90s when Dan Quayle and Murphy Brown go at it. If anyone remembers that, shout out to y'all. Paul Weirich starts going to Russia at this point because he's like, the country's so bad, we got to go to Russia and look to like, you know, uh, what Vladimir Putin and other leaders are doing there to kind of get a model for what we want to do. So all of that to say, that's kind of where I start. And that's, Uh, that's how I tell the story. Yeah, that's a lot. I think that's such a good framing because that's in living memory of like people that are alive today. Like that's, 
And that's, that is what's wild to me. Like when I look at kind of the evolution of like abortion, like how evangelicals viewed abortion. And then I look at my grandparents. I'm like, y'all lived through this. Like my grandparents were like in their thirties when forties, actually, when suddenly abortion was wrong, you know, like, so it's like 40 years of your life, you live really not caring. And now it's like, I mean, to talk to my grandpa, I mean, it is, it is, it is his single issue. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like, and he, he will go to his grave continuing to vote for pro-life people. So like, what happened? Like when I, when I look at it that way, like, like he was, you know, a little bit older than I am now when it was decided that actually it's wrong and it's, we've always thought it's wrong. Yeah, we have like, no, you did not, (laughs) you know, like. Yeah, that's that's such a wild thing to me, how how our understanding of history is different. Like I even like just like a couple weeks ago, there started to be this trend. I saw I saw it on TikTok and I saw it on Twitter where it's like people calling Joe Biden to account for the things his administration did in 2020. And I'm like, (laughs) do you do you do you all not remember? And And I fully believe in five years, Elon Musk stands will be saying he invented Twitter. Like I, I put, put money down. Now there will be people that say he invented Twitter before, before the decades out. It's like our memories are just not, they're not good. I guess is what I'm saying. I also think nostalgia, like Tori, you were talking about nostalgia and I think nostalgia is really powerful because it, it, it's basically a longing for a time or a place that never existed. But then you can convince yourself that it that it did exist in the 1960s, the 1860s, right? So if nostalgia masquerades as history, then you can really say, oh, back then it was good and now it's not. Where where in reality, you're longing for a time that never existed, but you have inserted it into a certain decade, a certain era. And therefore, you can use it as a landmark to say, if we just went back to that, what you're really saying is if we could just go to a thing that never existed and is a fantasy land, then I think things would be better. But when it when it takes on the mantle of history, then you it gets more powerful. You know what I mean? Yeah, I see that. So, uh, you know, one of the things I I talk about a lot is the way that myth works. And I think just kind of comes up to what you're saying there, Justin, is like there's so many MAGA myths out there and evangelicals, I think, are primed for them because, you know, one of the things I recount, I don't know if you I'm curious if you all and I know you did in various different ways, but. When I was a senior in high school, we had this new Bible study in my youth group, and it was on Friday nights, and it was the book of Revelation. And I don't know if you all remember being in youth group, but like you always begged your leaders, like, can we do Revelation? Yeah. You know? And I was like, you know, and I was definitely that kid who like listened to Chuck Smith and listened to like the Hal Lindsey stuff and was like, I want to, is it pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib? These were the the debates I had. There was that, and there was that millennial fear, you know, like the year 2000s approaching, like this is, you know, like Jesus is coming back soon. Like there was just that like general anxiety about, you know, what's going to happen. And so we have this, it was night, it was actually 1999, my, my last year of high school and revelation. And we meet on Fridays and, you know, it was this new young assistant youth pastor who went to the Calvary Chapel Bible College. So he was very into the end times, way more than our other leaders. And we would just sit there and it was Friday night. So we didn't have to like, you know, we had to get home at some point, but it wasn't like we had to be done at eight because it was a school night. So we could start at seven and get done at 10 or 1030. And like no one's parents really cared because we were at Bible study. And we would just go through Revelation for hours. And it felt so good. 
because a it was like the end of the week and i could go from my public school and feel like i was in this like cocoon of like those who really knew what was happening rather than fighting upstream like yeah. i did all week at school you were unplugging from the matrix like you were seeing right? the, the truth yeah and we even felt like we were like the chosen remnant within the chosen remnant because all the adults were like sellouts who like had 401ks and mortgages and we we're like that's what jesus is coming we're not doing that we're not sellouts like that so like it, it was even like more hardcore than our yeah. elders right and it felt like so good and we would talk about the looking back on it the most bonkers shit like tony would just be like yeah pretty soon you're gonna get a chip implanted in you and you're gonna have to decide if you want the barcode right pretty soon the euro currency is going to be revealed as the currency oh, of the beast. No. Right? Oh, God. Because yeah. uh -huh. remember, that's like, like that's what y'all are younger than me, but like, that's when the euro oh, came yeah. about. It's like the yep. end of the 90s. And everyone yeah. was like, well, that's clearly the mark, new world that's order. The one world, of the beast. That's the one world government coming to get us, you know. Just bonkers shit all over. But we loved it and we ate it up, right? And here's my point is just like the sense of not just thinking that we knew the truth, but that we knew it together. That like we were in that little room with the like terrible body spray and pizza we probably were eating. You know, mm -hmm. like it just that room probably smelled like the worst shitty bean mix. bags. Like, yeah. The, yeah. The worst mix of pizza, body spray, BO, and thinking we knew the absolute secrets of the universe. But it wasn't like we were alone in a room. It was like, I'm with 40 other kids and we all know it together. When I think of like QAnon, when I think of Pizzagate, when I think of, you know, Elon Musk stands thinking he invented Twitter. When I think of the nostalgia that Tori talked about, I'm just taken back to that because I'm like, you're primed to not only want to know that you have the secret to the universe, but that you know it in a community with other people. And it feels so good mm -hmm. to like live it out as a community. Yeah. yeah. If, if, if that makes any sense. That, that, that makes sense to me. And it also makes sense in some ways of the distortions, because I think a lot of us that are now out, we knew the Bible better than anyone that's still in. And so when we see how these folks like distort Jesus, like we, we could talk a little bit about like manliness movements and stuff. Cause it's like friend of the pod, Dale Partridge uh, wrote a book. I'm assuming he listens every week. That's just my assumption that I go into every episode with is that Dale Deep Partridge, part. like this listens to us like hate listens probably, but anyway, so yeah, he writes like this book, The Manliness of Christ, when it, which is just like how how Christ is this like epitome of manliness. But it's like Jesus like compared himself to a lady chicken, like, and was kind and tender and compassionate, and said like you know like those who live by the sword die by them. And then like before we got on, Brad, you sent us a link about this man card project at a church, I guess in Washington, where they're like they're like training like it's. It's like, it's, I mean, it's a fucking indoctrination slash boot camp, you know, to teach these boys to be manly like Jesus, like teaching hand to hand combat. And like they're shooting, you know, these, you know, massive rifles like for Jesus. I'm like, you know, those of us that are out are like, what the fuck? Like, do you just <laughs> not read this book? But like the way that communities can get together and like we believe this distortion together and because everyone I know believes it like, well, this is the yeah. real truth. Yeah. Like and all these all these people, you know, that, yeah, they believe in the sissy Jesus, the one that like heals the sick, but like, fuck the sick. Like we're here to get ours, you know, 
like that's the real Jesus or something. I no, I agree. And so here, let me let me just bring this up. So this is um this was sent to me by a straight white American Jesus listener, and uh, they pointed me to this Substack post by Dominic Bonney that talks about Gray City Church in Wenatchee, Washington, and they just had their first Project Man Card class, which they called a rite of passage for the young men who who attended. It was uh, twenty boys who were there for the kind of like overnight thing. And one of the leaders said, man, is there anything sweeter than dads with their boys? I don't care who you are. You know, you can watch that and get through it with a dry eye. Something's not right in your heart. And that's by uh, one of the leaders. And I agree. I agree. Like, you know, great to see dads with anybody. Awesome. Great. Cry. I cry all the time. Like, you know, a lot of crying watching my daughter do the most mundane shit ever. It's great. But the pictures that are like accompanying this quote are like 15-year-old boys holding assault rifles, wearing gas masks, and like uh, camo fatigues out in the in the wilderness. And mm-hmm. so this is not like, hey, you 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 know competed in the spelling bee or you you know you served your community. And so the whole like man card rite of passage was hand-to-hand combat, weapons training, and preparing for war, which just happens to be the uh, title of my book. They want to do them, quote, dozen times a year. And yeah. Yeah. And they 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 want to basically train these boys in what they take to be the image of Jesus, right? One man said that his son was, quote, all in, locked and loaded. And then he had to step back and say, hey, let's, you know, let's let's do this. Let's let's get in here and do this weapons training. There's pictures of boys fighting hand to hand. There's pictures of people like wearing like super just intense like protective gear they're carrying Which a log in one no infantrymen would actually wear yes <laughs> well, no infantryman right? wants a heavier gun <laughs> and then here here's the here's the finishing quote hopefully what you're seeing is generational legacy and blessing when men come together and get serious about following jesus all right so <laughs> it's jesus so did hang out with a lot of dudes it's true Mm-hmm. So there is that. Okay. All right. That's... You also wear a dress. So I'm not sure how that works with like body armor. Mm-hmm. That's true. Okay. All right. All right. One for each side. Uh, right. This okay. is what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus was trans. That is like, that is like the editorial position of, of this of, podcast. Of this yes. podcast. Yeah. So there was also a tweet this week from Adam Little. And I, to me, it was just perfect. It was like, you know, you can talk about biblical manhood all you want. Why don't you talk about Joseph, ostensibly Jesus' stepdad, who we don't know that much about. And I don't want to praise Joseph just without knowing that much about Joseph. But, you know, Joseph's partner came to Joseph and said, "Uh, I'm pregnant by way of the divine. And Joseph ostensibly said, okay, I believe you. Let's raise this kid. And did so. We don't really hear much about Joseph in the gospels per se. Matthew does like trace his genealogy strangely, which is weird. Like every time I teach that, the students are like, wait a minute, Joseph isn't even related Joseph, to Jesus. Why, Joseph's why not does even Matthew his dad. do that? <laughs> yeah. Why, why did that happen? And then I have to be like, don't just write the is, names down. There's going to the be a test. Okay. Is the virgin birth in Matthew though? Or is it only in Luke? I can't remember. Uh, no, it's in, it's in Matthew. It's wait in Matthew as well. Now you're making, now you're making me doubt myself. We can, we'll have to go see. This is what happens. We can. If you don't do. Can, your, you don't do. You don't do your sword drills. You get sloppy. This is how it works. You can continue. I'll look it up. So, you know, Joseph kind of like steps aside, isn't in the spotlight, is not the guy in charge, is not the one like charging ahead. 
we don't know that much about Jesus like adolescent time. But anyway, here's the point. There's so many ways you can talk about biblical manhood. What, has anyone in this on this show, like right now in this in this uh, your recording room, have any of us ever heard a sermon about Joseph as the example of biblical manhood? Like, no, we not. Right. I mean, so, I mean, anyway. and most biblical manhood people would say that Joseph was a chump, like for getting played like that. I mean, on, if we're very honest, like that Mary was found to be pregnant of the Holy Spirit is in Matthew. I don't know if actually the virgin part is, but anyway, uh, that's just a side note. Yeah, it is just interesting. Like the, I mean, there are, and there are other examples of like more tender masculinity and more, I mean, humane masculinity, honestly, if we're just going to call it that in the scriptures, but the, that's not what's gravitated towards. It's like David, like the Bible's fuck boy is like held up to be like, this is biblical manhood, you know, but not, but not his one relationship with a dude. Interestingly, I'm very, I'm stuck on that. I'm never, I'm never not going to be stuck on the fact that they're like, David, he's the guy you should emulate yeah. David, yeah. except for the murder part. And then, but like, I, I've said this on here before, never have heard a sermon in my life about how men should strive to have a friend like Jonathan. Yes. Yep. Like, yep. like even taking the, obviously yep. sexual nature of their relationship out of it like it just it does speak very 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 clearly about how intimate they were with each other how close they were with each other how you know the the love between them was was better than the love between a man and a woman you know like so like that's like i mean i'm sure i'm sure if you ask these people from grace city church if they loved each other like david and jonathan they would say yes like you know, I think that'd be, I think that's like part of the vocabulary. Like, oh yeah, we're, we're totally intimate when we're kicking the shit out of each other and shooting guns together like David and Jonathan did, you know, but it's like, mm, that's, that's not what intimacy is. Maybe read that passage again. It also brings me like what you're saying there brings me back to like the total homoerotic aura of like youth group culture. Like when the boys from the youth group hang out, there's like so much wrestling and like grabbing and like weird hugging and it's and, all done and, in like the name of jesus and like hey you're my brother and it's but like looking like i've never pretending been to be more... gay for like pretending no. to be like making fun of gay people but like in that like mm, that might cross the line way like no like the amount of grabbing like i played yeah. high school sports i was in locker rooms there was way more just like hey i'm gonna like invade your bodily space or touch you or or like something or do some like really aggressive hug thing anyway here's my point I my guess is if we had been at the man card camp, there was probably a lot of David and Jonathan type touching just mm -hmm. under the banner of like, you know, you're my brother in Christ. And so we can do this, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And I, I just want to say, I, I don't know if you've seen the the Trump NFTs that are for sale now, the Trump trading cards. Have you seen these? Yeah. yeah. They're like very homoerotic. Oh, are they? Oh yeah, I mean there's heard, like I've, like I haven't Trump actually seen them yet on like a buff buff superhero body like <laughs> you know like with lasers coming out of his eyes and like a like a oversized dick like you know like bulging out of a tights you know I mean people that are I mean it's images of him that are more buff than he has ever been in his entire life but like it's just yeah and like I saw a lot of those homoerotic like signs and stuff you know. Mm -hmm. I was in Gatlinburg there during the Trump years. There was a lot of that weird stuff floating around. So yeah, it's like, 
y'all y'all got a hard on for power that's for sure i and there's like a deep history of this in, in the united states right i mean you know in the in the 1910s there's this whole movement to i i guess part of what i love doing in these conversations is trying to tell folks like the wenatchee people and others like you're there's nothing original about you nothing mm-hmm. zero every time this country gets new immigrants from different places every time this country makes any step forward when it comes to like tearing down economic monopolies or whatever, there's a call for men to get hard, if you know what I mean, Mm -hmm. and like return to real masculinity. And so like in the 1910s, 1915s, you have all of these like crazy, uh, bizarre boys, youth groups. Some of them are like medieval themed. Mm -hmm. So you join and you become a knight and and you go through it that way. Some of them are like super well, yeah, wilderness themed. Yeah, no, I mean, this is where you get, right? This is where you get these these sort of like overtures towards that stuff. And what happened in that era? Well, you know, they were busting economic monopolies. Immigrants were flooding the country from places like Italy and other parts of South uh, Europe and Ireland. I don't know, we're a generation after uh, the Civil War and the end of slavery, so on and so forth. Guess what? Men were threatened and they were like, and what was the conception of Jesus then? this is where you get buff Jesus. Like the, like the, the YMCA and other organizations start in those, in those decades, because there's so many men that are like, we need buff Jesus. We need athletic church. We need a church where men can be men and active and not just sit in a pew and sing nice songs. They need to be up and doing stuff and they need to be asserting themselves. And it's like, there's nothing original here when you see the Wenatchee man card thing or Mark Driscoll or Donald Trump. It's just so predictable. And it you can like you can see the levers that push it. And then you're like, men used to go to war. Men used to do things. Men, and it's like, here we go. Like, here we go. We, you know, anyway. I mean, I I mean, if, if you want to go die in war, you can go do that. Like that's still unfortunately, a thing. no one is stopping you. That's still a thing you can go do. Yeah, it's it's wild. And and I it's in some ways it's helpful to think of it as cyclical, but other ways it's depressing because this country very much feels like we take two steps forward and then like a step and a half back, which is technically still progress. (laughs) Um, Just at the slowest possible rate. Yeah, like the bars on the floor. And we're like, "Hmm, I bet we can get under that. (laughs) I bet we can get under that. That era, that era fascinates me because what you have in like the end of the 19th century, and I, I go over this in a couple chapters in the book, is like you have all of that stuff I just talked about, like immigrants and changing gender roles. Therefore, buff Jesus, real men need to come back. Okay, that's one thing. But then you also have like the lost cause mythology that's still living after the Civil War. And the South is like, we didn't lose. And the Northerners were just out for our land and our money. And the South is going to rise again. And Jesus was on the side of the Confederacy. And in 1915, what happens? Like the birth of the Klan, the second Klan, and and by the 19 well, Black 20s, Wall Street happens then too. Like... Exactly right. 1919, right? And so it's it's fascinating to me because the myths, the nostalgia that we talked about earlier, the masculinity that we're talking about now, the threats of the other, the ra- the ra- the the threat of the free black person, the threat of the newly arrived immigrant, the threat of the Catholic, the threat of the Jewish person. Right on the West Coast, you have the threat of the what they called the heathen Chinese, right? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and so you you can just track it. And then what happens a century later? 
as you just said, Justin, like it just cycles around and none of it's new. It's predictable and it's super, super depressing to see it happen all over. So that's part one. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break for some capitalism because, you know, we got we to gotta keep the lights on. I'm just going to say it. Then we're going to do uh, just a quick, we're going to give out a Bible verse. And then uh, hopefully we're going to shift gears a little bit to be like, yep, it, it's fucked. Like we're, this is, we're in a cycle and we're in a cycle, but maybe also giving some historical context of like, when did these cycles end and what can we do to maybe speed that up? So we'll take a quick break and we'll be back in a bit. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Thanks for taking that quick capitalism break with us. We do need to take a quick, just a moment to... One, I just want to say thank you just for this year. This is our last show of the year. And I just want to say thank you to all of our patrons, uh, people that have come on this year. We had a patron drive earlier this year, and it was a great success. We were able to cover a lot of the costs of the show, which is wonderful. So thank you so much for your support. We really appreciate it. All of you that have shared the podcast with your friends and given us reviews and everything, five-star reviews, it's all we're accepting at this moment, uh, at this time. <laughs> You know, we, I just want to say thank you. I mean, this show has grown in ways that we never expected. And so getting near the end of the year, kind of nostalgic. I just want to say thank you so much. We do have one new patron uh, this week, Nate, who is a new youth pastor in the second church of the Drunken Bible. And like all great mega churches, we have an army of youth pastors. Um, and if you, <laughs> and if, you, if you donate at the youth pastor tier, you get a life verse. I mean, it is your verse forever. It is from the Lord. It is mediated to you by your God-appointed leaders, Justin and Tori. And so uh, th this is going to be your verse. So Tori's going to do the verse, okay. the, the versing, and this will be your verse oh, the, forever. The, the flipping, the flipping, yeah. flopping of scriptures. Okay, cool. Uh, let's see that that is that is not part of the Bible. That's just some random shit they added. Okay, the maps again, <laughs> unbiblical maps, concordance. Good God. Okay, let's see here. What have we got? Oh dear, it's Rehoboam. Okay, Second Chronicles eleven verse five. Rehoboam lived in Jerusalem and he built cities for defense in Judah. There you go. The hey. word of the Lord. Yeah. For. For you and you only, Nate. Yes, because this makes no sense otherwise. Yeah. So, I mean, if you're going to build a city, you may as well be able to defend it. True. I guess Rehoboam was in, in scripture one of the good kings. So yeah. there is that. There is that. I don't know. So Jeroboam was, was the guy that didn't worship God. No. So if you're going to be one of them, the Lord has given you the correct one. You don't want to be the evil twin? No, I mean, kind of. Uh, <laughs> so, so many places we could go at this point when we talk about Christian nationalism. Again, the book comes out January 3rd. 
Did you pick that on purpose, like right before January 6th anniversary? Anniversary. It actually ships January 3rd and it will arrive January 6th. So that. Wow. That's perfect. That is. So that is perfect. I'm going to. I'm going to. That was your idea. I'm sure. Uh, And it was. Yeah, that's perfect. It was. I love this. I love that. Like. 70 80 years from now some grad student is going to figure out that you did that and be like oh my god you guys look at this like look, look what he this, did look at this play <laughs> like i it's absolutely going to come up in somebody's like research paper guaranteed <laughs> i doubt well i have a lot of things to say about why i doubt that but yeah okay oh i'll leave it i'm gonna leave change? oh no just well a just i don't think People will be reading this book in 70, 80 years, but much less in like grad students. It's going to be but like, also, a, it's going to be, it's going to be like some random esoteric, like, oh, I'm going to try to find something that nobody's talking about. Yeah, and I'm going to yeah. write about that. I feel so. like I'm pretty confident in saying that this book will sell better than the case for Christian nationalism. <laughs> I'm going to put that out in the universe. Wow. And I'm going to say it's going to sell better. You're going to be quieter about it than Stephen Wolf, probably, but. I'm gonna You're just... not going to cry that like people are writing mean reviews about your book. If after the show we could maybe text about a wager, I would that would be good for me because I would like to make some money to buy presents. So, um <laughs> I I'm going to put that on the universe that it will sell better than whatever nonsense he put. All right. Out. Well, um, I appreciate that. Well, okay. He acts like a guy that's not selling as many copies of his book as he would like. <laughs> well, I mean, he's got he's got doug wilson to like buy up all of the copies so like what is i don't know what he's worried about fair what's he worried about i just i read really esoteric shit and it would probably be a textbook and whatever those weird whatever those weird oh yeah they're gonna they're gonna no they're gonna assign it as as like uh required reading for some random bible school somewhere in like you know the inner mountain west or like (laughs) inner like pacific northwest definitely it's 20 of the boys that show up for it i'm telling you it's you're gonna be you're gonna gonna put it out there in the universe so there's just a lot going on there's there was an insurrection january 6 two years ago now like what is time so weird a lot has happened since then you know i, I feel yeah. like christian nationalism i mean thankfully that christian nationalism is in the vernacular like it's something that we're thinking about publicly and wrestling with publicly you know but at the same time, I think there are a lot of people that are like, how do I even approach this? Like, yeah, I can't even get my relatives to be like, gay people are human. Whereas Christian nationalism and confronting your own Christian nationalism, I think takes higher order thinking. If that, yeah. So what, what is the, what's the way forward here, I guess, if anything. Sure. Yeah, so I think it, let's take it at um, two levels. I think if we take it at the sort of societal level, the civic square level, one of the reasons I wrote the book and called it Preparing for War is that I want more people to realize the kind of state we're in. That mm-hmm. for 75 years, we have had extremists in the GOP, extremists in white Christian enclaves who want nothing more than to take the country back for themselves to take dominion over every aspect of it. In 1964, Barry Goldwater says in his presidential acceptance or his GOP nominee uh, acceptance speech in San Francisco, he says, you know, in times like these, extremism is a virtue and moderation is not. And the idea there is that extremism is how you should be thinking to go forward and moderation is a sin. 
my argument is that from 1964 to now, that has been the underlying mantra. And all the ways that uh, abortion became the, the issue that you talked about, Justin, all the ways that war and masculinity and sexuality and nationalism and everything that we've we could talk about here became prominent were a result of the belief that extremism is the way forward because it's the only way to get your country back as a white Christian. If you don't realize as somebody who's who's for uh, multiracial democracy, who is for a situation where um, there's a chance for something like independence, liberty, equality for people, that that's what you're up against, then you have no choice. Uh, you have no chance. Uh, Charles Creel is like a, a politician and filmmaker, and he says, you know, the best position to be in in a war is if your opponent doesn't know they're in war. And I think there's a lot of folks out there that are just not sufficiently cognizant of that. So I think that's number one. And I think what it means on a cultural, political, public square, civil level, we have to do what I see both of you doing in, in various ways, which is saying, like, we have to resist and fight without compromise and do so in ways that will actually help people, whether that's on a policy level, whether that's on a, a cultural level, whether that's fighting a fight over here or a battle over there. When it comes to the interpersonal level, right? So that friend, like that family member you just talked about, Justin. Yeah. You know what I, what I've really started to to do is to move away from the comparison of facts, the comparison of information, because I think we have to just admit, and I and I think everyone listening knows this already that we're getting information from different places. Mm -hmm. I don't think those places are the same. I'm not making it both sides. I do not think that they are equal or both legitimate. But if I'm talking to my cousin who's deep into MAGA world or my aunt who's deep into QAnon or my old friend who's deep into, you know, kind of Jordan Peterson, Joe Rogan, Elon Musk masculinity. I, I just came back from a Jericho march. Let me tell you about it. So I could sit there and be like, here's why this is all wrong, blah, 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 blah. Or, you know, the thing that I do now, if that person actually wants to talk, like if we still have a relationship and they still want to like actually dig in, like what's your life about, you know, this and that, I just start with feeling. And I say, hey, like you're talking about your Jericho March, or you really seem to be into Joe Rogan, or like you you really are like a fan of what Elon Musk is doing. What is all like what's behind all that? Like, is that like are you are you feeling like that gives you hope? Does that address a threat that you perceive as part of the country? Like what makes you afraid about this moment? What makes you anxious about the time you're living in or the time you're raising your kids in? What is it that like disappoints you about the last 10 years or the last 15 years? And they're gonna give you answers that you're not going to like. And a lot of it, you're going to just have to like, accept that it's, it's, it's not good stuff. But when we start talking about like, here's how I am afraid. Here's how I am disappointed. Here's how I am uh, worried about my kids. Here's why I'm anxious or here's why I'm resentful. Then maybe, right. The conversation turns from data and evidence that probably on their side is coming from conspiratorial or erroneous sources. And it turns into like, yeah, you know, I get that because I'm afraid of this and I'm afraid of that. And I am really worried about this for my family and for us. And if we can get there interpersonally, we might make some room to, to actually talk. And we might get to a place where instead of looking at you as a stupid liberal, as a brainwashed progressive, as a dumbass woke piece of whatever, as a, you know, person who hates white people and hates their country, right? They might, or, or even worse, somebody who's a serpent or has like demon DNA and smells like sulfur, right? 
they might look at you and think like all of those masks, all of those projections, all of that armor might fall away. And all of a sudden you might be two people in a car or in a, in a living room having a talk. And you might actually share a sense of fear, hope, anxiety, resentment. And then maybe there's a chance to actually, right, see, see if they might be willing to see it from your angle. Here's why the attacks on trans people, right, are just really not okay. Here's what, you know what I mean? And so I, 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 here's my point is like, if we go with, if we start with emotion and affect rather than data and belief, I think there's a chance with that friend, with that relative to actually have a talk that feels in some way fruitful rather than just banging your head against the wall. Can't believe you think that I'm turning over the table at Christmas dinner. I'm throwing a turkey leg, right? I just smashed eggnog on the floor. You know, Janice is crying and, you know, Vanessa just left and the kids have to go in the other room and put your mom. Janice cries every year. I know she does. (laughs) Yeah. It doesn't matter what happens. Janice is going to cry, but you know, it's just a matter of, yeah. I may as well be the one that does it. I love yeah. this. I really, yeah. I've been trying, I don't know, this is really funny because I've been trying to like get just random conservatives on Twitter to like have these conversations with me and they like will not do it. And I think it's so funny because I'm like, there's something inside of them that like, that knows that if they sit down and have a conversation, yes. what's going to happen? Yes. Um, yeah. And I'm really kind of fascinated by that because it's like, it's very much like, I will I will actually like make progress with people and like make some build some kind of like rapport with people like I don't I haven't met but it's like whatever you're like a pro-life activist or like a business person who's really pissed that homeless people exist or whatever the situation is. But yeah, as soon as it's like, hey, like we should actually talk about this. They're just like the ghost. And so I think that like what you're saying is pretty like on point because for the people that don't realize, for the people that don't have like the foresight to go like, Oh, I'm gonna change my mind if I like come up against this with like a an actual person that I can have a dialogue with. Like, I'm not gonna be able to keep believing what I believe. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, like yeah. I think maybe a lot of people understand. Well, it's because you're also taught about the slippery slope, like and and to guard your mind, guard your heart. You know, it's like you also realize. I think if you're not realizing it consciously, it is subconsciously. The like, if I let these ideas in. Uh, I'm done. Like there's a TikTok that's been going around about this guy that was like, I dropped out of college because they were trying to indoctrinate me with feminism and Marxism and wokeism or whatever. But like he goes on, it's like, I don't want to learn about feminism. Basically, I don't understand it and I don't want to learn about it. And I mean, this guy was being stupid. I mean, I don't think most, I mean, he's also on TikTok. So I don't even know that he's a real person. Most real people aren't like this, but the attitude of like, I don't even want to learn about it because then that's something I have to actually deal with is it, it, it's prominent. And I, when I go back to like what, what convinced me, some of it was data. Cause I'm a data driven yep. person, yep. yep. but ultimately it was like seeing pictures, hearing stories and letting those work on me over time that that's what actually did it. And so like, I mean, I, I, I experienced that with my dad, like he'll talk about like liberals, like, like they're these filthy child molesting people. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'll just like be dad. Like I'm a liberal. It's just the conversation ends immediately, but it's like, like you're talking about me. Like you realize that. And I think it's like, Oh crap. I, they were humanized for a second. We got to shut this down. That's it right there. Like if, if you go from 
grooming liberal who want, who hates country and hates God to my son who I love and I think is a good dad and a good person mm. and I'm really proud of, then I'm in trouble. And 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 what I guess what the, what I'm saying is is like, and I think this is why Tori, you're saying like people don't want to meet with you. And this is why, like for me, it's it's in that in that moment, it's like I don't even want to remind them that hey, I'm a liberal. Do you hate? I just want to keep asking. So tell me, like, what scares you about pronouns? Like, wh- what? Like, how come that is just so? Like, I, and I'm not making. You know what I mean? I'm like, I'm not yeah, making fun yeah. of you. I'm not like. I just want to like. That seems to really bother you. Like, tell me about that. That makes you angry. Why? You know. And if if they will go there to like the anger or the resentment or the fear, then maybe it's no longer there's a there's a crazy liberal in front of me, but there's like my cousin or my friend or like my son and maybe for a moment they'll talk to their son or their friend or their their cousin rather than the liberal that they have been told over and over and over to hate and despise and be scared of and try to and try to destroy you know so I, yeah I, I just think that's that's the way forward not the well I came here with 17 pages printed out of data as to why <laughs> Trump Trump actually raised taxes and you know blow you know what I mean crime act violent crime is actually down and you know what I mean like that good luck right yeah and 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 data is so like easily manipulated like there was a john hopkins study that came out that the abstract was essentially like the lockdowns in the united states didn't work like that's the abstract and i've seen so many of my friends to be like see lockdowns don't work lockdowns don't work you know look look they never worked you know it was just liberals trying to control you or whatever which is like hey that's a way to read that study. But like when you dig into it, it's like, no, it's what it's actually saying. It's like, not that lockdowns don't work, but just the piss poor way that lockdowns were executed by the United States, which large swaths of the country never actually went in anything that could be considered a lockdown. Anyway, whatever. Essentially what it boiled down to is like, Americans are so obstinately selfish that lockdowns as a policy are not effective because people will refuse to comply. Like, mm-hmm. so it's like, like that's a very different result to the study than what is going around in conservative media. But like, even just me explaining that, like I've lost, I've lost people, you know, because it's like the sound bite of like lockdowns don't work. See job. John Hopkins even says so like, uh, like, well, like you got to read three paragraphs to actually understand what the study actually says. So it's, it's interesting. And, you know, I, the dream of the internet was that we would have all this information and we all be informed, you know, and we never, I don't think anyone like thought like, oh, people can just publish lies. <laughs> 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 so we're living in like this weird, like, like, like in the 1700s when you could literally just publish lies about your political <laughs> opponents. Like, like we're living in that world now again, which is a strange, it's a strange place to be in. Be right back. I'm going to write a hit piece on Thomas Jefferson. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm going to pay this publication to write, you know, something terrible about jo- Thomas Jefferson. Like, like something crazy. Like he sleeps with his slaves. Like, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> oh, wait, they hit a little close to home. Oh <laughs> Talk about biblical manhood. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. yeah, that's true. That's true. It's true. It was in the Bible. I don't know. It, I, I don't mean, know what to tell you. Literal reading is... of the Bible requires that you support the institution of slavery. 
so one thing you said 1700s so now i got this thing in my brain so if we go so like more so the idea you're saying there right more information equals more freedom more education more yeah. factual agreement in the public square right yeah but like we think about the reformation so you know we get martin luther we get john calvin we get zwingli and for that first generation of the reformation right you've got like three or four main dudes who are like here's the way not catholicism and let me tell you why right and and there's some people that are like i think they're right and you know some some chaos ensues and some some various uh, main character arcs go through it but like there ends up being a kind of breakaway faction we're with martin luther or we're we're in geneva or we're john calvin okay a generation or two later what do we have we have like 85 factions right because the printing press is, is alive and well you can disseminate information and everybody's now claiming they're the authority because the, the catholic church no longer has a monopoly right so now everyone can be an authority and everyone can disseminate information and you're like huh so then we get all these factions and no one knows what's true or real and so what happens is various kingdoms just become catholic or they stay catholic i should say and others are like protestant and then europe goes through like 100 years of fucking brutal war yeah because it was just your identity is catholic versus minus protestant it was no longer what's true what's real what's actual mm-hmm. and so like when people are like why would you write a book called preparing for war because i'm like when the public square gets to the point where anyone can be an authority and any story can be true and any fact and any statement can be fact nothing is true no story matters and no one's actually an authority and your only option is then for everything to break down and it's just the will to power who can actually win when it comes to 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 actual war like the young republicans just had their gala last week this is early december and first speaker gets up and says we have to be willing to take our fight to the economic sphere the political sphere the cultural sphere and yes to the streets uh meaning physical violence is necessary so to me like when you said 1700s it was like that that like my brain just fired because it's just like the 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 more information you think is going to give you more reality and in fact it might just give you in some cases at least i don't want to overstate this but it might lead to a complete breakdown of authority and knowledge to the point where it's just me against you who can win in an actual fight yeah i think that this happened like with 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 the radio also right and you see like the rise of fascism the rise of the clan like all of these things it's like oh nazism like New York Times thinks we should give it a shot. Why not? Like they're doing good things for the highway system. But yeah, I think that, yeah, whenever there's a new technology that allows more people access to, yeah, speak as an authority, I guess. Yeah, you, there's like this huge retraction in in rights because everybody gets spooked. And like you said, nobody knows what's true. So it's like, well, I'm just going to go with with what I'm feeling. I'm going to go with my faith, like whatever the people who are in charge, like in leadership in my church or my political party are saying, like, that's just, I have to go with that because there's too much information for me to like reasonably sit down and kind of like parse out like, okay, where's this coming from? Like most people don't have that kind of time, right? Like totally. Yep. They just mm-hmm. realistically, like a normal person just is not going to have that kind of time and they're not going to care to do it either. Right. So I think that when we're talking about cycles, I was like, this just keeps happening. I'm like, I hope at some point, like we figure out what the cycle is, right? Because it, it does keep happening. And like, if we can keep reminding ourselves that like, hey, this is part of this cycle. And like, what can we do to mitigate harm in like the interim, right? 
where we're trying to get back to a place where we don't have to keep having conversations about like, is bodily autonomy a good thing? Is it a right? Should women have it? Like, who knows? Yeah, the kind of keeping in mind, it's like, okay, it, it is legitimately a cycle and we kind of have like limited time because of a lot of other things going on in the world, like like climate change, like the rise yeah. of fascism. But being cognizant of the fact that like, there is still like, there's always going to be work to do and like feeling overwhelmed, which, you know, I, I battle with feeling overwhelmed every single fucking day. Okay. Well, what, like at the end of the day, it's like, well, what the fuck can I do? Right. Like it's, it's, it's great to be able to tweet about like, I don't know, punching Nazis or whatever. <laughs> like, I don't know any Nazis. And usually like, I'm not in a position to be like starting shit with people, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Like I live in Portland, so uh, you know, gotta be cautious. Also, all that to say, I think that what I really appreciate about your work is that it does give that context, and it gives like this really kind of clear, concise history where you draw these like really straight lines from like what was going on in in the 1960s, where we did have all of these kind this huge expansion of rights, you know, like literally the Civil Rights Act same year as you gave like that Barry Goldwater quote of like extremism is a virtue, right? Same year. Like he was, you know, he knew, he knew what was going on he, and he knew his audience and like, think fuck he totally. lost. But like, you know, I think that like, for me at least like knowing, like knowing history makes me feel a little bit more confident in like being able to strategize. Like, what am I going to do in this moment? Like, what are, what are my skills? Like, what do I have access to? Like, where do I have margin in my life? And like, just going with that, you know, because at the end of the day, I think that it's not going to be this like big World War II style. We're all like we're all together in this like fighting evil. Right. It's not going to it's not going to look like that. And so figuring out like what your place is in that space of of resisting like this weird Christo fascist takeover. Yeah, that's really important. I also like just to pick uh, everything you just said is amazing. And I just like when people think of a second civil war, they're often like, well, like North versus South, is that really going to happen again? And it's like picking up on what you just said, Tori, it's like, what if we have little fires everywhere? What what if in North Carolina, somebody takes out a power grid because they don't want drag queen story to, hour to happen? What if in Coeur d'Alene, Patriot Front tries to like massacre people at a pride event? You know, what if there are people right in intimidating voters in Arizona? And so when we ask ourselves, what can we do? I think what we have to realize is it doesn't, ha we don't have to think of ourselves in this North versus South us versus them. Like, it, you know, as you said, world war two, whatever it may be, whatever axis of right. powers you think. Are, right. Exactly. Think, think of your community. Think of your locale. Think of your place. What can you do there? What's one thing there? What's one fight, whether, you know, it's at your school uh, board, whether that's in your, your mayoral race, whether that's in, you know, whatever, whatever way you can just get involved where you are, I guarantee you there's a fire. I guarantee you there's a a thing that you could you could contribute to. Yeah, I mean, the 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 Proud Boys shut down a drag queen story hour here in Columbus, like, yep. you know, and, mm -hmm. and unfortunately, the police were more or less high fiving the Proud Boys, you know, so there, a lot of help they were. So it's I mean, it's I'm sure there are in almost every city or community there is some front of this takeover happening that that you can be involved in and honestly i mean 
I have three kids and my physical combat skills are maybe better than average, but they're, I'm not peak physical condition. So like, I'm not going to be punching Nazis in the street probably. And I'm not, I mean, if I, means mode of an opportunity, if they all come together, sure. <laughs> but I, I'm not in a position to seek that out. Uh, but, and, but you can be on your school board and do a lot of good. You can be a part of the PTA and be do a lot of good. Even if just providing a little bit of reason to the room, mm-hmm. you know, to be like, hey, like children reading mouse or whatever is right. not bad. It, it, like there, there are ways to contribute that don't necessarily involve putting yourself in harm's way. For some people, that may be the case. Um, I think I think we're going to need all of it, but I think we need to think creatively because the the like headline violence stuff is is what's in your face. That's what's picked up by the by the media, and that's not the media's fault. That's just you know if it bleeds, it leads. I mean that's that's just the nature of the beast. But I think there's a lot of smaller ways that we can contribute that are going to set our kids up well, that are going to set up the next generation well, that are going to set up uh, marginalized folks well. Uh, mutual aid, you know, being able to just like support people that are maybe, you know, don't have access. I think that those are, I think those are going to become more and more important as, as fronts for lack of a better word in this conflict. I also think something that was really interesting to me because we got like Portland got so much negative attention for, you know, showing up and pushing back when, when proud boys or three percenters or whoever the fuck showed up, but like they didn't, they didn't show up last summer. They finally figured it out. They're like, every time we go somewhere, there are going to be people who oppose our ideology very, very clearly. Right. And it's not going to there's not going to there's no neutral ground here that we can come in and like try to convert people to our side. And it wasn't. Yeah, like, absolutely. There were there were fist fights like somebody got shot during the 2020 protests. Right. And then that person, the shooter was then assassinated by the president. All that to say, like. There was this very consistent, concerted effort to be like, maybe one weekend we're going to dress up as clowns and like make fun of them. And like maybe another weekend we're going to do like a dance party and like just drown them out. And like there was all this strategy going on. Right. It wasn't it wasn't like every single weekend, like somebody's getting murdered or like there's fist fights happening in the streets. Right. But eventually they got tired of showing up here. Like maybe we just got a year off. I'm I'm still fine with that. Right. Like. At least they got the message. They got the fucking message. Just like we got for the first time. And I don't remember. It was like six or eight years. We got like a summer without the fucking proud boys in the streets. And, you know, most of that. I'm like, fuck, like legacy media. Most of that was nonviolent. Well, I think that points to like what you said, you know, a year off. Right. And so if if we're thinking of this in terms of a a final ending to whatever we're talking about here when we talk about conflict, battle, war, et cetera. That's the wrong way to think about it. And I'll tell you the other, and we all grew up in this. The other side is not thinking about it that way. You know, if if you're like, well, if, if you think that they're, they're over there, like, well, midterms didn't go as well as we thought. Oh yeah. That's probably, God's probably not real. And this is all, I mean, you you know, I mean, are you serious? Like, do you Uh think that they, because they lost like Doug Mastriano, and Carrie Lake. Yeah, they're more like they're like the devil. They're like the yeah. devil's alive and well. Let's keep fighting. Setbacks are not like the end ever. And so they can't be for us either. Like we have to be like, hey, today was a good day. Today this was a good month. It was a good summer. We saw progress here. We saw something we accept that something good happened and then 
we're going to take a breather. We're going to take care of ourselves. And then we just keep going because it's not about it ever just being over. It's just about like saying, how can we keep making it as good as possible? And that unfortunately means right. Facing things that threaten the, the livelihood, the the humanity, the rights of, of many people in the country. So, um, mm-hmm, I know, mm-hmm. I know we have to like wind down at some point. I have a really good quote. I want to, cause I'm, yeah. I'm like a, I'm like a really dreary person to have on your podcast. Cause all I talk about is how everything's like <laughs> terrible. And um, you're fine. You're fine. I love Miller, how you get all salty on your podcast though. Like yeah. everything is terrible and you get pissed and it's, I'm like, Oh, I feel good. Somebody else is mad about this. It's not just me. Yeah. And Dan Miller's usually like, uh, we need to go to reasons for hope. Um, (laughs) well, all right. So I've been reading this great book and I'll recommend it to anybody. A map for the missing. It's a novel. It's by Belinda Weijong Tang. And in it, there's a quote from a Chinese author called Lu Zun, 1921. And it's, uh, it's from a work called my old home, but here's the quote. I think it's just so good. Hope cannot be said to exist nor can it be said not to exist. It is just like roads across the earth, for actually the earth had no roads to begin with, but when many pass one way, a road is made. Mm-hmm. And I just love that because, you know, when Martin Luther King Jr. says like the arc of the universe bends towards justice, it's easy to take that as like a statement of like theological fact or belief. Right. I always just take that as like a, that may or may not be true, but I'm going to enter into the story that says mm-hmm. it could be true. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to enter into the story that says, I'm going to try to walk one way with others such that it makes a road that goes toward justice. Now, will it exist de facto? No. Will it always mean that we're moving toward justice? Probably not. But I'm going to try to walk with others in a direction such that it creates a road ahead of us that that moves towards justice and provides the tracks for those who come after us to follow in it. And it's, you know, and, and, and you all know this time of year, you have to dig out the road, right? There's snow, there's mud, there's sleet, you know, you got to like clear the road constantly. It's not ever just there. You have to work on it. You have to make sure it's safe to walk down it and so on. So I just, I read that and I just, I thought that was like, Hey, maybe I can actually be hopeful for once and say something that people will like take away and think that was nice. He's a nice man. What a nice man they had on. What the a show. nice I, man <laughs> he is. I don't. You know. I don't know. I don't know. I'm, tr- there, I'm trying. A lot of there's a lot of eight energy in the room today. I'm like the lone seven. That's like <laughs> let's try to. So I appreciate you doing this, Brad. Yeah. I well, I do think that 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 is that is a lovely thought, and I think that I think entering into that story, like I like. Not because I, I do think that we we take that quote for granted. I think in some ways, and like a lot of evangelicals, we still have a lot of that like God's in control, like kind of bouncing around our head. So like, of course it does. We elected Obama. Long arc of history, we're fine. You know, it's like I, we can't rest on our laurels ever. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that and that mm-hmm. can be a depressing thought, but it can also be like, well, I'm accepting this reality now, and I'm going to walk towards you know like making sure that the long arc of history bends towards justice. And that's a, that's, it's not saying it's not true, but it's just that different posture. I think that's, that's so key. And, and we can celebrate this month, you know, uh, marriage equality, you know, like extra protections for LGBTQIA, you know, partnerships, um, interracial partnerships as well. Like it's sad that we have to have this debate in 2022, but it's also like, Hey, you know what? We did a good thing. 
and we made it that much harder to tear it down. And so let's, let's continue. That's great. Any final thoughts, Tori? I mean, yeah, I really, I really do think that like, sometimes we get this thing in our head. I feel, I feel like historically on, on like sort of like more liberal progressive places that we have this idea of like, oh, we did the thing. Like we got the legislation. It went through. This is great. And I'm just like, I spend way too much time sort of like silently fuming over the fact that I'm like, you fuckers really thought that like the civil rights act and like all of this legislation changed the way that police were behaving because like they have no oversight like that didn't affect them in any way you think it's like Mm -hmm. one day it's like oh wake up and i'm just like voting rights act i guess i gotta treat the black people some sort of way like equals or something like nobody's checking on me right so i think voting machines will just appear (laughs) in the right spot (laughs) right and i think that like there is sort of this the thing that the the right really understands fundamentally, and I think the left, I shouldn't say the left, but like liberals, moderates really don't, is it like the war, quote unquote, is like it's never over. Like you you always have to keep moving forward because otherwise they're going to start pulling stuff back. Like as soon as you're like, okay, like we're done. We did the thing. Congrats. Like high-fiving ourselves. And I feel like, you know, I feel like I felt, I felt like this when Obama got elected the first time. It's like, could you guys like stop? congratulating yourselves and like you're literally bleeding governorships and like state legislatures right it's like we did the thing we have basically a supermajority. like the republicans are never coming back I'm like how many times have people fucking said this like you still have to keep doing the work that doesn't mean you can't take breaks right but like just being cognizant of the fact that like the work isn't going to end all you're doing is making it easier for like your kids your neighbors kids your nieces and nephews and and nibblings and the kids down the street at the local school like all you're doing is making it a little bit easier for them right and that matters right because they matter yep that's right mm-hmm. that's absolutely right yeah keep walking down the road keep making sure there's a road to walk down keep making sure that people know it's possible to go that direction Keep making sure it's possible that people feel like uh, there's others that are willing to go with them on that road, right? Just mm-hmm. keep walking the road, keep going. Mm-hmm. And it, it doesn't, you know, and there is no, there is no, it's over. It's just a, it, you know, it's just a, you keep moving. Right. And I feel like, I feel like black indigenous and, 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 you know, communities of color know this just in many ways intuitively. And a lot of times, you know, it's, it's, it, mm-hmm. it, it's white, it's white white communities that have to be like, Hey, we didn't, we elected Obama. So now we just have brunch for eight years and just, you know, Obama is like, was the biggest, like I have a black friend moment for white people. Yeah. Like that was like, and I I'll admit I was a part of that too for, for a while. Like, Hey, we, we elected a black president. Like, look at us. Like, we're amazing. Like, look at us (laughs) white people, you know, like, Right. But it's like when you take your foot off the gas, that's sort of like the problem. It's like, oh, we can coast now. Right. Like it's that sort of mentality of like, yeah, we can high five. We can we can celebrate. We can like throw parties and do fireworks or whatever is happening. It's it's the like, oh, we're done. We did the thing. That's the problem. Mm -hmm. Racism solved. Yeah. Check. And And I mean, yeah, we could have a whole other podcast on like just like white psychology as far as like political activism goes and i get why i get why like people of color and indigenous folks are are just tired of white people jumping in to try to help 
because we're so fair weather. We're like, we're going to help until midterms over and then we're gone. Like, and so I, and it's something that I think we have to get over. And I, and I, and I see a lot of progress there too. And I, I, I want to believe that my kids will have it easier than me in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, my, my kid is somewhat openly a pagan in her school and, and people accommodate that, which would have been unheard of in my high school. So, and so I hope, I hope, I hope that we can continue to keep our foot on the gas and, and, and go so far so fast that like, instead of taking two steps forward, one step back, we get to take 10 steps forward. Then who the fuck cares if we take a step back, you know, like, yeah, yeah, that's where I'm at. And I hope everyone listening has a wonderful holiday, government mandated or not for you. Happy Merry Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Festivus, whatever it is that you celebrate at this time or nothing. I hope it's good for you. I hope it's a good rest. And then, you know, January rolls around and preparing for war hits your doorstep. You're able to hit the ground running in January. So there's, a, there's some really good stories about first kisses and yeah. see you at the pole and throwing American flags on the ground and 6 a.m. prayer meetings with boomers. So it's pretty juicy. I'm not going to oh, lie. Right. Yeah. Pretty yeah. juicy. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that should be a marketing campaign on like Instagram, like stories of Brad's first kiss. Yeah. Like, yeah. Just like peach emoji, just peach emoji. Like if you yeah. want, yeah, that's why. That, no, the, the juice is there. Yeah, so. there's don't no. The, I, I suggested this to the marketing people and they shot it down. And I, <sighs> you know, somehow they think they're good at their job and stuff, but whatever, yes. you know, so all these, all these experts telling you what to do. Thank you for having me back. Thanks for just a great conversation and, uh, you know, learn, learn something new every time I come and get to hang out with you all. So thanks for having me. and just really appreciate you. So thanks for, yeah. thanks for letting me be here. Yeah. yeah. You are very, very welcome. On. Thanks for, thanks for coming on. And uh, yeah, for everyone else, uh, we'll see you in a couple weeks. All right. Bye. Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change, it's a podcast about seeking moral high ground, and it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know.